Greetings, downhillers, freeriders, dirt jumpers, slope stylers, and other progressive mountain bikers. It's episode seven of the MTB Jumper podcast, where I feature conversations with extraordinary riders, coaches, and industry leaders. We talk about skill development, bikes and gear, digging and building, strength and fitness, and much, much more. I'm your host, Norman Peterson. Thanks for tuning in. Imagine spending your life traveling all over the globe, working with the world's greatest cyclists, or assisting athletes like Carson Storch and Kelly McGarry dig lips, landings, and lines at Red Bull Rampage. My guest this week has done all that and much more. His name is Ryan Vergeron, but everyone, and I do mean everyone, knows him simply as Verge. Please enjoy my conversation with one of the most prolific and knowledgeable professional mechanics in the world anyway, of biking. Verge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. For, can we start with the name and and, and just, just so people, because it, people are going to see, you know, Ryan. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, my my name is Ryan Vergeron, which um, like, I guess that's my given name. Pretty much everyone calls me Verge for uh, years. Okay. So uh-huh. I don't think anyone, I mean, I have a bunch of friends that are not aware that Verge is not my real given name. So <laughs> at this point it's Verge. Gotcha. It's way easier. <laughs> Yeah, it took some effort to to find any any of your existence on the internet. Oh yeah, it's perfect, right? I'm a ghost. <laughs> the ghost mechanic. Yeah, exactly. All right. So, uh let's let's maybe step back to your beginnings as uh as a bike mechanic. Uh yeah, I mean, kind of just started, you know, long long ways ago just riding bikes. Like I grew up in a small town and so just always rode bikes get around and kind of in the 80s when your kid could just disappear for six hours in summer and like that wasn't illegal or you, your parents weren't going to call them the cops so I think I just just rode around and then kind of started riding mountain bikes and then mechanically inclined so kind of started learning how to work on it because there was no bike shop within an hour of my house so mm. to keep where was this again Polson Montana so it's about an hour north of Missoula okay. like hour south of Whitefish Montana northwest Montana um, but yeah so I started doing that and I think like really what happened was i read an article in probably like 95 96 97 in mountain bike action about like traveling mechanics and literally it was like an interview with like the guys that traveled and wrenched at that time on the norba circuit which was you know huge with gt having semi trucks and the massive kind of like glory days of mountain biking sure and i was just like wow that seems really cool and they talked about just like traveling and living out of a suitcase and like effectively eating fast food. And at like 16, I was like, that's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, got a job at a bike shop in Montana. <laughs> Worked there for I think three years. Knew that to kind of like get to the traveling side of things and race mechanic, that kind of thing, I'd have to go. Like I wasn't going to get – Montana wasn't a big enough market. So moved to Portland, um, worked in kind of a nicer shop there, and then – went to USA Cycling Mechanics Clinic, which is they have kind of a program. It's not to teach you how to work on bikes. It's more to teach you a lot of other things, how to interact with riders, how to, you know, like what you need to travel with, like what your tool selection should be. So kind of it had very little to do with actually fixing a bike. It was more like how the how everything else works, which is a lot of times the hardest part of the job. So a- an actual race mechanic training. Yeah, yeah, and it's like how to set up the pit at a crit, how... Wait, wait, know, the pit what? The pit at a criterium, so like a <laughs> okay. road race. Yeah, okay. sorry. Okay. That's um, okay. <laughs> uh, and, you know, like like where you would set up a pit for safety of view, for access. So all these kind of little things that 
It's not like it's not adjusting a derailleur. There's not a step process to it. So that was that's kind of where it started, I guess, for me. And then there was Joe Sanschulte that he had. He's a Northwest guy. He's at a he's been out of like Seattle area. He had a road neutral support program. Okay. So like the road races around Washington, Oregon. Um, he did a lot of neutral support. So in the follow car, providing support during the race. And my boss at that time at the shop in Portland got me contacted with him. Uh, and then I kind of like showed up to the race and started to work with him. I think the first race I, I took a Greyhound from Portland cause I didn't own a car cause I lived in Portland and was a poor bike shop guy. Um, took a Greyhound from Portland to Tacoma, walked to gig Harbor slept wrapped up in a tarp and got up the next day and hitchhiked to the race <laughs> wow so uh it was pretty cool because he was like how'd you get here and i told him a story and he was like wow guess i'm not gonna question your commitment to doing this it was just like it was like okay i guess you can work with me now so that's wow. kind of where it started doing uh road stuff um gotcha and then through contacts there started working with it was wines of washington was like a women's professional team and huh. Group Health, which is another road team out of Seattle, and so started doing some traveling stuff with them, and then from there got the job with Shimano at Shimano Neutral or SMS, which is Shimano. Um, I'm spacing it. Multi service, which is their kind of like race support program for road, mountain, BMX, kind of everything they do. Gotcha. Awesome. So so wow, um, a professional traveling mechanic from the start, more or less. Yeah, I mean, I spent. Three years in a shop in Montana, I think two at a shop in Portland before mm-hmm. I started doing like the part-time travel stuff. Care to name those shops? Or? Uh, yeah, Montana was Open Road Bicycles in Missoula, Montana. And okay. then in Portland was, I started a Fat Tire Farm, which is kind of mountain bike specific higher-end shop. And then uh, at the same time was working at Revolver Bikes, which is I end up going to after Fat Tire Farm. And then the owner of Fat Tire Farm also owned 21st Avenue Bicycles. So I kind of was floating... Like when they got behind at one shop, I'd go work for a day or two and kind of fill in and help out. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, those are the those are kind of the last three shops I worked at, or the only three shops I worked at. Mm-hmm. That was over five, six, seven years, seven, six years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Seven years and some real diversity of experience wrenching. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, like Montana shop, we did you know like a little bit of everything, like you know, kids bikes, mountain bikes, road bikes, and then. That tire farm was definitely like higher end mountain bike stuff. But at the same time, when I was doing that, I was then on weekends going and working, you know, road races. So kind of like was doing higher end road stuff with, you know, the neutral support thing on the side. And then hmm. revolver bikes was neighborhood shop, you know, like definitely like they kind of were when the like fixie boom started happening, they did a lot of stuff with that. <laughs> and, you know, commuters, fenders on bikes and in the location, it did a little bit of everything, kids' bikes, you know, a lot of commuter stuff, but yeah, kind of a little bit of everything as far as shops go. Cool. And then along comes the, uh, eventually Shimano. Yeah. yeah. How long were you with them? Like spring of 2008, basically to fall of 2012. So four years, five seasons, basically on the road. Okay. Yeah. So cool. And doing what? Um, so multi-service, uh, is their, yeah, their neutral support event support, um, program. So if you ever go to see Otter, see the big blue Shimano tent where people are working on, you know, like the Shimano techs are working on racers bikes. If you go to a BMX race, um, 
uh leo is usually this guy that has raced bmx forever and he'll, he'll be there okay. like working on bmx race they do you know like iron man in hawaii so it's kind of like um for that's for like, the u.s uh multi-service and then they do i think paris in france you know they're at every world cup for mountain bike um so they're kind of it's it's effectively a a shimano yeah it's neutral support so if you are at a race you're a registered entrant um a registered participant and then your derailers weird your brakes are weird like that's the program that you can go to them um it's free you pretty much just have to have a number plate and be a racer and they'll do within reason whatever they can it's not they don't do maintenance per se it's more the hey something broke while you're riding you know it's the idea is you're supposed to show up with a bike that shifts on day one but on (laughs) day three if something weird happens then um shimano would take care of you and kind of get your bike running again so cool so okay that's that's awesome so where were you uh i've (laughs) where did uh, you work with them uh all over i mean i basically so the office is in orange county in irvine california um but i basically lived out of a suitcase for all those years um wow i actually it was funny the other day i realized i hadn't unpacked my suitcase completely without just like for like 30 seconds to dump out whatever's accruing in the bottom for <laughs> since 2008 <laughs> like so literally it's been packed since 2008 um and i don't think i've traveled gone on vacation pretty much gone anywhere without like a small toolkit since 2008 so it's just like it's always <laughs> yeah like i've always just had that like enough enough to basically build a bike whenever i travel um mm-hmm. or pretty much assemble a bike so uh but yeah that was all over the US like I drove a truck and trailer for them uh I think I'm trying to figure out I th- think it's probably 35 40 plus states that I was at um wow it between vacation one year I was trying to hit all 50 states in 12 months okay and so I think I got to 48 I missed <laughs> Florida and Alaska <laughs> Uh, with the combination of work and just like travel for fun. So within, you know, 365 days, I mostly drove to 48 states. Jeez. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it was a lot of work, a lot of fun, you know, like it's, it's always new, which for me, I kind of get bored easily. So uh-huh. like, it's always, there's always a changing view when you're driving, you're in a new town, you know, like it also allowed me to kind of keep like relationships going that I wouldn't have had, like friends that, you know, like friends from college that good friends but you're never gonna fly to cincinnati to see you know and then you're like drive through cincinnati and you're like i just happen to be here for a day or two like do you want to grab a beer so that was that was a really cool aspect and just meet a whole bunch of the other traveling people for all the other brands in the bike industry that do similar jobs and then you know you see them for a day in bend oregon and hang out and ride bikes and you know go out and get food and it like seems kind of like a normal life for a minute (laughs) you know like because that's what people do is go ride bikes with their friends but um those places are just all over for me awesome cool so and all types of races yes yep yeah i mainly so we all kind of had there was in general about four people in multi-service that were techs there was usually um there was the big like fifth wheel travel trailer or fifth wheel trailer it's like a 25 30 foot trailer and a dually truck and that was kind of the mountain bike focused one okay. um uh you know that's the setup that you would see at like sea otter or like maybe a big uh like big bmx race you know national something like that and then um, i had the road program um which was road neutral support so you know carried uh at the end had a 20 
an F650 with a 20 foot box that had a car in it and then towed wow. another trailer with a car. So it was like almost semi size. Yeah. Um, and you know, 40 sets of wheels, 30 sets of wheels, 15 bikes and kind of roll wherever needed. And then there was another sprinter van that did a little bit of everything, you know, mountain bike races, some road stuff. So, <laughs> but yeah. Gotcha. Let, let's get a little granular on the, on the actual experience of being a, a, a mechanic taking care of riders during a race and and maybe particularly you know downhill and since this, since this is a progressive yeah. mountain biking show yeah. uh downhill or whatever mm-hmm. related <clears throat> stuff i mean, well, what's that like it must I, my my feeling is it must be stressful but i don't know uh it can be you know i think like any other job can be stressful i think if you show up prepared with kind of the right attitude then like it, it works out better usually, but there's yeah. definitely times when what's the right attitude. I don't know. The Like eventually, you know, shit's going to hit the fan and eventually you're going to have to deal with it. And you just got to <laughs> like, you never know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. And so just okay. whether it's, you know, like parts that you don't have replacement parts for and you have to figure out a solution or, you know, like it's, it's, pretty good like as far as overall like going to some of the other teams and ask for stuff you know someone blows up a chain guide and Hmm. you know we carry shimano spare parts so we don't have any parts for you know chain guides we don't have a lot of parts for other stuff you know whether it's maybe like a derailleur hanger so like going to some of the other teams and kind of like politely asking be like hey do you have an like extra so-and-so you're not using and so having those those relationships helps you you know just kind of overall being a i think reasonable person then they want to help you out because everyone's there for the same reason you know to make make sure everyone can ride bikes but yeah um and they're gonna need your stuff yeah and then yeah exactly that's the other thing right you know it's like they may need to borrow a tool that they don't have or they may need you know the air compressor that we have that they don't have so it's all kind of just trying to everyone helping everyone out it is a community you know with and you and you do you find cooperation generally across uh yeah like i've I've, like i've literally never been like when i was there it was just like yeah whatever and especially once you got to know something it's like there's my like toolboxes are like areas where you don't go like you it's just general you don't touch someone's tools no and so it's like with most of those people it's like loaning tools it's that's not common but for you know if it helps someone else out and it's kind of like i think there's a respect issue of if you are another mechanic then it's like you know that person knows you're going to respect their tools equally so um, yeah, borrowing a tool, borrowing a bench vise from someone or, you know, a, uh, maybe they have a Dremel that you need to kind of rig something up. So, yeah. yeah, as far as that goes, the community is is pretty awesome. Like there's there's definitely, uh, yeah, it's definitely a, everyone's trying to help everyone. You know, no one's, even though it's at that level of competitors, it's no one's like trying to be like not allow everyone. They want it, They want the race to happen kind of on, you know, on the track and have that the racers participants decide who's the best not like necessarily you know everyone wants Some to be prepared but yeah bullshit yeah exactly like you're not just like i'm hoarding this so my competitor can't actually race it's yeah. just like no man like i yeah you can have whatever you know so let's just get everyone to the track and yeah, that's great let it kind of be decided out there yeah generosity and community that's mm-hmm. really cool yeah, and and the, I, I I like to point out how that's like the nature of the sport across the board, right? Yeah, at the trailhead on the trails, it's it's amazing how helpful people are. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a really fun sport, but I don't think a lot of people would do it if, um, you know, if there wasn't that community and wasn't that, like, 
it doesn't matter how much you like something if you show up and you know get a bad vibe from a bunch of people or yeah. uh, it's just not enjoyable with the other people that are involved in the sport. You're probably not going to do it for a long time, you yeah. know. So it's like, whereas with mountain biking, it seems most people are cool and you show up at the end of the day on a trailhead and you know for the most part, no one's like mean mugging you and it's like hi, you know, like waving high on the trails and saying hi and yeah, helping out. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, cool. The opposite, surfing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, Imagine if there was localism in mountain biking, we would have half the bikes. Well, and I, I kind of understand that because it's such a finite condition, <laughs> yes. right? Like, like so. Sure. It's it's raining. It's raining to some right. extent. Yeah, I it's understand. raining right now. You know, like the trails are. It's been dry. Trails are going to be super tacky probably for the next day, and dirt's going to be amazing. Yeah. But if I go and use that dirt. And you go 30 seconds after me and someone goes 30 seconds after me. That dirt is to some extent infinite, uh, whereas a wave yeah. is literally this very finite point that may only happen sure. one wind direction, one tide. So it's kind of like, you know, it's literally everyone going for this one second, whereas mountain biking is like, the trail's going to be here tomorrow yeah. and the next day and the next day. And if I ride over it, the trail's still going to be good for you in 30 seconds or an hour. So I think yeah. surfing's a very unique sport because of that. Like even yeah. snowboarding or skiing is, if there's powder probably going to be there in an hour it's probably going to be there in two hours it might be there tomorrow but surfing's like no that wave is 20 seconds or that wave is 40 seconds and maybe that person waited for drove drove eight hours and chased it chased the swell up and down the coast and Hmm. so it's like i i don't i guess i don't condone it but i see why you would be you know like why you would be the way way you are because it's such a finite moment that you're chasing yeah cool so you must have worked with some interesting writers yeah. over the years. Any, yeah. Anybody come to mind in particular? Um, I mean, there's always mountain biking is something I think is like a, has a pretty wide spectrum because yes. a lot of people start riding bikes at some point. So whether or not they continue or not, but yeah, there's, it's a pretty kind of varied um, amount of people that will show up at a race. So there's always, you know, the, the person freaking out about nothing or just the person that shows up with, a bike that's just beat in the ground and like <laughs> barely held together. And you kind of don't even really want to touch it because you're worried that it's just going to explode underneath you. You know, like if you put a wrench to it, it's something's just going to break and you're like, ah, yeah. so, um, and then yeah, for, I mean, I, I work with Dimeback too. And we had, um, Kyle Thomas, who's local out of Seattle, uh, raced for him when I was there. And then Charlie Sponsel, who does, did team robot like yep. pretty hilarious character so <laughs> yep. so that was pretty rad because for the two years i was with time back i um i effectively for you know a few weeks a year got a road trip with charlie and wow. kyle and you know like be their mechanic which is awesome because it was i was already friends with them because they were both on shimano so i already knew them pretty well before um working with them at dime back but gotcha it was it was working with a friend and hanging out with a friend which is always pretty awesome you know yeah. like i got paid to kind of ride bikes with my friends occasionally which is pretty rare sure Where, what's charlie doing now do you know <laughs> he's hanging out uh he's <laughs> in um Portland? dc oh, no DC. he's in dc i think he's was gonna go to grad school and still might be um he was doing some like online stuff for grad school program uh and then is doing random i think he's working construction just like interior models kind of mm-hmm. like random job to save up for grad school i think but not racing no no okay. um i supposedly he's been doing some road races ish maybe on the east coast and kind of like Hmm. breaking people which is pretty funny yeah (laughs) just because he's charlie and he's is super fit and like he's Mm. it's funny because everyone thinks of him as a downhiller but like he rides road like even to train he'd be like oh i'm just gonna go on like this 110 mile road ride and you're like (laughs) 
<laughs> I know road riders that don't even do that. Yeah, he'd just like jump on his road bike and like with a peanut butter sandwich and go ride for four or five hours. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating character. And it's, it's, uh, I mean, I only know him from through Team Robot and mm-hmm. a couple of videos and other friends and, so I was, I was, I've actually been hoping to interview him, but it doesn't sound like that's a very likely thing. <laughs> um, yeah, possibly. It'd be inter- It's pretty funny. Like I talked to him a week or two ago in the conversation. I don't even know where it started. Just like checking in with him and seeing where both of us, where both of us had been, and like yeah. just went down some weird random side road about. I mean, effectively evolution and a bunch of other random stuff for twenty minutes until you're like, oh wait, you're good. I'm good. Okay, cool. Talk to you later. Like just like some weird side road, which was always fun. Uh, always fun hanging out with him because like he's really intelligent um, and pr- like a critical thinker. Uh, our buddy tells a story of we were having a discussion on when what differentiates a ladder and stairs. <laughs> Like at some point, stairs have to become a ladder or like a shallow ladder is stairs and steep stairs become a ladder. But like at what point is that? And my like the way my buddy Was there beer involved? uh, It was afternoon. I don't think we were drinking. Um, But as my buddy tells the story, they walked away like and like four – like went and did practice, did a track walk and came back like four hours later and we were still talking about it. And we were just like, really, dude? And I think the conclusion we came to is if you have to use your hands, it's a ladder. Uh Uh-huh. Sure. It's not a dimensional thing. It's more of like a use thing. So if you – if it's really steep but you don't need your hands, then those are just steep stairs. And the minute you have to use your hands and that becomes a ladder. And that is the differentiating feature. And then there was a multiple-hour conversation about uh, whether it's – Harder or easier for tall people to do push-ups, mm. which involves like oh, leverages sure. from your pivot, which is effectively your feet. I can like, answer that. It's harder. Longer uh, longer arms. Same reason bench pe- people with longer arms can't bench press as much. Because because of the length of the arm at the but in that it's a more sc- extreme angle. But in that <clears throat> scenario, you're not getting the mechanical advantage from your pivot point, right? Right. L- taller yeah. person has a longer lever arm. So they're doing Work is over a longer distance, but is a lower amount of work. Hmm. See, think cheater bar, right? Like yeah. the farther you move away from the pivot, the less effort it's going to take, but the greater the distance. I see what you're saying, but uh, my experience with strength training it holds. <laughs> I have no experience with strength training, so you win. <laughs> Hold, holds true. If you talk to, go talk to people who are 6'2", and then people who are 5'5", five five, and you will find those 5'5 five five guys benching way more. It's really interesting. Huh. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> back to yeah. bikes. Uh, Charlie sponsor sponsor sounds like a, an interesting person. I hope I get to talk to him at some point. Yeah, he's he's a gem for sure. He's a gem. Cool. Uh, right on. Um, let's see. Where should we go now? I mean, other other pros maybe. Um, anybody come to mind? Uh, I worked with Magaza when I was with Dimeback, so wow. he's definitely he um, keeps coming up. Yeah, he's definitely a unique person you know Mm -hmm. um and was there like was there when he flipped the canyon and was there Mm -hmm. the next year when he had the big crash on the canyon gap at kind of the newer site so Mm -hmm. that was i mean he was the most mellow stoked person ever like which is pretty amazing like um yeah i don't know it was like he was just really liked riding bikes and was really stoked on pretty much anything you did like um so that was that was you know pretty unique just working with him and his attitude of like watching the mental process he went through to flip the canyon and 
and being there and like him asking me my opinions. Like, what do you think? And I'm like, I don't have an opinion. Like, yeah. I, like, like I'm like trying to get down, you know, like I'm a average mountain biker, you know, like, sure. uh, like I don't have an opinion on this. I don't want to give you an opinion. Like yeah. I don't, <laughs> you know, like that kind of stuff. Like I know the bolts are tied in your bike. I know your bike will handle it. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's my realm. Like the bike's good. Like, mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, he was, he was really good. And Carson too. And Porter, like all those guys from time back data. Solid team, you know. Um, Carson Storch. Yep, yep. Yeah, I was there for his first rampage too, like working for those guys. So it was good. Yeah. Um, Porter's a solid all-around rider, obviously, and uh, Eric Porter and a good guy. So working with him. So it was a bunch of good people. Again, there's mostly good people in the mountain bike world. Yeah. Um, or I guess maybe coincidentally I'm around mostly good people, but also that <laughs> it's hard to be a bad person and a pro. <laughs> you know, like that's the flip. Unless you're number one. Right. You might be able to get away being a bad person, but there's a lot more, you know, like three through 80s that are still pro pro mountain bikers that are good people. Sure. Interesting. So you've worked Rampage? Two or three years. Okay. So I think 2012, 13, 14 or 13, 14. The energy there must be interesting. Uh, It's... I mean, it, it looks like, I think, to the whole world, like the most dangerous thing in the sport. Um, uh, setting aside some of the crazy stuff that people do on BMX bikes, not wearing helmets and not having suspension. <laughs> uh, anyway, focusing specifically on uh, on Yeah, I'd say, I'd say and yeah, and I'd say ride. like as an event, you know, like it's, there is a, I can't think of what, there was that huge um, jump comp that was like the massive jumps in angel fire that i think red bull did like six years ago and there's sure some, there's definitely some big stuff but i also feel like that's a it's not that it's less dangerous but it's a pretty controlled environment you know when when you're digging your own jumps and you have a lot of those events have a week or two and you know uh bobcats get here to get the stuff right and so there's like there's a lot more time to kind of giddy pig it um yeah. hmm. i think and you know it rampage is like a week long show up basically dig your own course down a giant kind of cliff-ish scree sand lot field. yeah like that's crazy um and they're digging so it's like they're you know in the same sense of like you would like bmx or dirt jumping where it's like you're digging for hours and then you go ride and you're digging for hours and then you go ride and so the you know it's really hot it's really windy it's really dry and you're trying to dig make lips out of sand and dirt and then then they got to go ride it, you know, like it would be akin to like if the world cup racer had to build this track in five days and then race it on Sunday. Wow. You know, like it's, and to, oh, yeah. to access it, you know, you're climbing up. It's not easy to even climb up there. So like on, on day one, like for me, I was always like just climbing, finding the route to get to where they are. You know, because yeah. you're climbing this ridge with like a shovel and a backpack and then you get up there and you realize you're digging on like kind of sketchy, like soft, mm-hmm. like soft dirt. And then you're kind of you're trying to pack a lip that's, you know, at the edge of a 20 foot cliff. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of like trying to like pack a little lip or, or you know, like scratching, scratching a takeoff and you're at the end of a 20 foot cliff. So you're always kind of like taking a step back two inches and then kind of look behind you and, you know, scoot back another two inches. And then it's like the kind of anxiety of day one versus like day five where you're just like, whatever, I got this. And you're just like, try, 
you just like <laughs> smashing up the hill and then just like, oh, this is easy. But yeah, on day one, it's always like finding the ways to even get to where they're riding is, huh. you know, because you'll climb up and then be at like a five foot cliff and you're kind of like, I can probably get up this, <laughs> but it's like kind of a loose five foot cliff and I'm just going to like pinball for 20 feet if I don't. Wow. And then you're like backtracked to try to get up. So yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's an event in the sense of like even the preparation. Getting acclimated. Yeah, even the yeah, exactly. Like the preparation, getting used to just being up there, sure. you know, and like that that was like the kind. Of, I think the shock for me, like the bike side of thing. When I was there, I got like I can, you know, I can fix bikes all day long. Like that's not a problem. But it was the like right. my first one. I was like, oh, I was gonna be sweet one bike Pff, cake, and then it was like, oh, I'm just swinging a pickaxe for eight <laughs> hours, and then I get to go work on the one bike, and I'm just like, <laughs> dope. Like, yeah, it was definitely. <clears throat> um, and that was digging for or. Uh, that, that that was, was for that was for Kelly yeah okay. and then the second year was also Carson because he was also on Dimeback so the second year was for Kelly. two bikes yeah exactly which is still pretty straightforward you know like sure. for three or four days you're digging and they're not really riding and it's the last couple um, this is really interesting because you know watching the videos and the lead up and everybody has their own or several people have their own edits mm -hmm. and, and uh, a lot of people include digging phase in their in their mm -hmm. edits and it looks like oh yeah we, they they show up and they've got all the time in the world and and they're and they're you know the idea that it's actually like this this time constrained kind of probably somewhat stressful and um you'd better hustle if you're if we're going to make this thing happen event uh, that really changes the feel of it and then on top of that it's some of the most risky and challenging riding on earth yep. you know, in the sport period um that that's really interesting you put a, a spin on it that i didn't realize because i haven't been there myself so yeah it's it's gnarly i mean and it's it... interesting that you're digging as well as wrenching but that makes sense too they're they're time constraint they meet they need all hands on deck yeah, yeah. and that and that's what it was and it's like i mean that also that part of being you know if it's a team or whatever whether it's a mechanic it's just like the mechanic's job isn't just to work on a bike it's to drive it might be to run and get sandwiches it might be you know to like get food it's basically it's basically to help the team be successful so who knows what that is one day it might be driving to the airport it might be boxing bikes shipping bikes running you know like doing a side trip to a distributor at a bike shop to get parts that you don't have or parts that you know broke so there's a lot more to it and i think that's the part that gets lost for a lot of people you know sure. like how do you how do you effectively run a bike shop on the road while traveling constantly um yeah and sometimes what you're flying to New Zealand, so you need parts for a couple riders for a couple days. But what are those parts? How much do you have? You have a 50-pound weight limit. So, mm. you know, for instance, our toolboxes have to have to be under 50 pounds unless you want to pay a whole bunch of money. So right. you're trying to fit effectively a bike shop worth of tools plus spares plus all this other stuff. And there's, there's a lot, lot of logistics that go around that aren't just fixing bikes, you know. In a bike shop, you go grab a derailleur off the wall and put it on. There's a whole, you know, you have your tool wall and a bunch of drawers full of tools. and Or you get it delivered later that day or yeah, yeah, early exactly. the next day. Yeah, exactly. Oh, we don't have the tool for that? Okay, well, we'll just call the customer and we'll just tell them it's done Thursday, not Tuesday, and they'll probably be okay. And we'll have sure. that tool shipped in. Yeah. And it, this is, that's not, that doesn't work. So <laughs> On the road. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, so... um yeah, but I'll bet you get good at finding resources in in strange places. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty like once you <clears throat> I think once you start traveling too, you get to know a bunch of random people and so you'll bump into a shop and you'll get to know someone there or you just 
you know, literally you just kind of start making phone calls to people, you know, and people that may have lived in that town or you think may have gone to college in that town. And, you know, and you're like, I'm here. Do you know anyone in insert town here? Okay, cool. No, but your friend used to live there. So I'm now kind of like cold calling that person and trying to explain <laughs> the situation and to try to track down, yeah, whatever random part might be needed. So wow. um, I think it, it, and it all varies, you know, at, at a very elite level, it's they're, they're really dialed and they have those spares in general, sure. but sure. You can bring two derailers or three derailers and think that you're good and that can disappear pretty quick mm -hmm. with a crash or, a, you know, um, product malfunction or something like that. So, right. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of just like, I don't want to say winging it, winging it in the sense of like making a product that doesn't work, but like a lot of creative thinking and creative problem solving that happens too. Sure. Um, hmm. AJ Johnson of GHY Bikes, uh, episode six, I think, I think that's episode six, uh, which comes out in two weeks from now. So whenever you're listening. It's in the future. Yeah, it's in the future. He, uh, I asked him what he might suggest that I, that I talk to you about and his suggestion. Ooh, this could get interesting. <laughs> no, it's no big deal. Okay, good. It, he, he suggested we talk about suspension designs and why people choose. Uh, and why people choose brands. But let's start with suspension design if you want to talk about that. Uh, yeah. I mean, from, you know, my experience, I don't definitely don't have an engineering degree. Uh, it's more, <laughs> uh, you know, hands-on product knowledge, I guess, working for some other companies and working with a bunch of different athletes and at shops. <clears throat> um, but, I mean, I guess, you know, 15, 20 years ago, they were there's a lot of designs you know in the sense of it's kind of like the the mid 90s to late 90s was like the the explosion of mountain bike suspension when dual suspension started happening and was known and so that time there was a lot of like like interesting designs not necessarily <laughs> crappy just like i mean in hindsight they are but in hindsight your first computer was crappy too it doesn't yeah. mean it was a bad computer um right. i had a manitou fork with foam in it yeah. Other, uh, otherwise, te not. technically elastomers. Elastomer. <laughs> so ridiculous. Um, I mean, I, I I got a lot out of that fork. Don't mm -hmm. get me wrong, but I remember taking it apart and going, "What the literal hell is this?" Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. There's <clears throat> and the, the, yeah they did they did at the time what was needed because it was pre air sure you know or pre reliable air suspension which is basically what. Short of like full blown downhill, and some some guys are switching to air, um, mm -hmm. or most forks at a high level are air, like at a World Cup level, and then rear shocks, uh, kind of a mix now. Air air shocks starting to kind of come in on some tracks, but um, yeah, there's there's a bunch of kind of cool suspension designs. There's a bunch of different feels. So in the same way that uh, you know, like people want different feelings out of different bikes, which is why they may or may not go with one suspension design over the other. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, single pivots are really simple. They're, um, they don't have the best braking characteristics. They tend to stiffen up under braking. Um, right. but depending on where you ride, if you're not riding really rough stuff, then that might not be something that's a concern, but they are simple. They tend to be less expensive. Um, a lot of times they tend to be a little bit lighter, uh, tend to suffer from what they call a falling rate. So um, a suspension that gets softer the farther you move through the travel, which is usually, which is regressive as opposed to progressive, which stiffens up 
farther into the travel, basically. Which, so, se- which would seem to more be more intuitive. Yeah, it, it, yeah, exactly. You want something that's, you know, effectively small bump or small bump compliant works well with, you know, let's say breaking bumps. But then when you go off a four foot drop or land, you know, short in case, case the knuckle, like you want something that's also going to absorb that and not blow through the travel. So the flip side of that is then you have the shock itself, which an air shock is linear in the sense of, uh, to double the uh, double the amount it's compressed in the sense of like if you compress it one inches versus two inches or two inches versus one inches, then uh, you know that's why you have inch pound spring rate. So it takes four hundred fifty gotcha. pounds to compress it one inch, nine hundred pounds to compress it two inch. So if you literally plotted that on a graph, it's what's called linear, right? You're drawing a straight line between those points. Sure. And air shock, um, by nature, uh, you can tune spring rate, but the harder, you, the more you compress it and decrease the volume, the greater the pressure goes up. Sure. So you can use something like an air shock with a single pivot to to kind of offset those factors because the air shock is going to be cr- progressive, so it's going to take more pressure to compress it the farther you get into it. Um, and so combining that with different leverage ratios, suspension designs, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we've kind of settled into single pivots. <clears throat> There's still some, you know, big companies like Orange in the UK is still doing a lot of single pivot stuff. Um then there's like the FSR style pivot, which is a pivot on the chainstay, um, usually in front of the, uh, in front of the rear axle. Mm-hmm. You know, Rocky specialized. All that's pretty common transition. Um, there's the short unequal links, which is a you know generic name for the VPP design. The DW links. They all have kind of different specific characteristics, but the design concept is all the same. Um, and then there's like the concentric pivot axle so trek has avp da vinci who i work for has um split pivot but it's all you know like there's like four or five kind of concepts and then a thousand ways to make that concept different than Mm. the other one or to just make it make it ride the way you want right like there's there's not going to be a bike that rides well everywhere and bikes tend to be condition specific um and you'll see you know like a company that tests in one place a lot might have a bike that's really good there but it might not be as good in somewhere else Gotcha. You know, so it's if you if you can imagine, let's say, a company was based out of Oklahoma and they make a bike that works really good in Oklahoma. Well, that doesn't mean it's going to work well at Tiger. It might, huh. but it's like, but then if you have a company that tests at Tiger, then it might not be the best in like smooth, flowy desert stuff. So sure, sure, interesting. Um, yeah, so there's a bunch of. I think now we've gotten the point of like there's a bunch of good designs, um, and it's what's it's what works best for you and what you're looking for out of a bike which is why and how you ride and where you ride yep and like that's why the like you know a lot of shops or a lot of companies will have a demo program and mm-hmm. that's i mean that's what i do now effectively is traveling demo stuff for da vinci um but that's really what ideally what you want to do is test ride it first and figure out if it works for you you know it's it, there's not going to be a bike that works for everyone everywhere and it's condition specific and it's rider specific and it also tends to kind of be um, like, uh, I don't know how to describe it. Um, your, your riding style is going to change. So what you rode four years ago might not be what you're into. You know, if you used to ride downhill and free ride stuff and push your bike up the hill and shuttle, and then all of a sudden you're like, you know what? I want to do big exploratory rides. So it's like, even though the conditions are the same, like you're, you're literally what you want out of a bicycle changes and can change pretty drastically yeah. um you know over the course of a couple of years or or yeah it's a cross-country person that 
that realizes they want more travel and all of a sudden starts going up to like Tiger and is like, oh, this is this is what I'm into, you know? Like so, so your preferences of what you want to do with a bike changes too. So yeah, which is why people, fortunate people, will have multiple bikes because. I, I don't know. The concept of the quiver killer is is interesting to me, and 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 I think for the most part, not a real thing. Uh, the closest, I, it seems to me that that, and and this is a question. The closest we've come is the, the last three or four years. The development of the aggressive trail bike, what we used to call enduro, which we can't anymore because that's a class of racing right so uh but it's it seems like there are some bikes that are getting close to kind of being really good all around um what do you think about that uh i think you're right i mean it's you're never gonna have one thing that does everything um and especially like in the northwest is tough because i5 corridor has one riding style east of that has kind of like deserty stuff so if you go you know if you live in Let's say Portland, you go to Hood River, it's different riding than Portland. If you go to Bend, it's even more different. And if you go, you know, west from the I-5 corridor, you're basically in coastal rainforest, like mm-hmm. for the most part, pretty rugged, rooty, rocky, yeah. not as much rock. But And then if you go east, you know, an hour or two, then you're in basically desert. And so they're two substantially different terrains all within an hour or two, which is like a normal kind of, you know, like weekend riding or weekend travel distance to go ride your bike. So... In the Northwest, it's really hard because there is such a varied terrain. <laughs> yeah. um, a lot of different riding here. Yeah, like I've, I've traveled a whole a bunch and ridden a bunch of different places. And, like, and Northwest in, uh, includes all the way up into BC. Yeah, I say yeah, right? you're right. I say Northwest from a um, for mountain bikers. For, the no- Northwest includes BC. Yeah, and that's it's funny. I'll say Northwest. I was like, I mean BC. So south. like, do you call that Southwest? Because when I hear Southwest, I think of like. Arizona, you know, like I think of like, I think of like, I don't know, like cactuses and like cattle skulls in the desert. Mm -hmm. But um, (laughs) yeah, there's, there's getting, it's getting a lot closer to having a bike that can do well everywhere. It's going to have its place where it does best. But, um, you know, even some of the shorter travel bikes that have more, uh, you know, a slacker head angle, kind of a more aggressive geometry that would have normally been a stronger frame. Yeah, like would have normally been reserved for a bike with six inches of travel. You're finding those numbers and geometry on bikes with, you know, five inches of travel. So you have a bike that pedals really well, um, but still has high speed stability that you need. So And can um, take a beating. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's, yeah, there's definitely, it, it's definitely a good time to be a mountain biker because it's hard, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to make a really bad decision. You know, you might not, you might not get something that's perfect for you just because a lot of times that takes experience and experimentation and, you know, like I'll talk to people at a demo and they just moved to the Northwest from somewhere else and they bought a bike a year ago in Florida, mm-hmm. job brought them to the Northwest and they're like, oh, this <laughs> bike doesn't work here, right. you know, like, and it's, they found the greatest bike ever Yeah, for Florida. Yeah. It's just, you're not in Florida anymore or <laughs> yeah. Traveling, you know, like traveling and doing stuff where sure. you buy a bike for the Northwest and Southwest BC or BC. Um, and then you end up in <laughs> Sedona for the weekend, yep. you know, and it's not, there's bikes that work well everywhere, but there might be a better bike down there than there is in Bellingham. So. Yeah. And what, what is that, uh, that five inch travel ish, mm-hmm. uh, bike for, for Da Vinci, 
Um, it's kind of, you know, if you're looking for a do-everything trail bike, it's kind of split between the Django, which is 120 rear, 130 front. Um, okay. Slackish head angle uh, in 29 or 27.5. So for most people that are showed up at a demo and not like, don't know exactly what they want, it's either the Django, which tends to be 29, um, okay. a little bit bigger wheels, rolls better, um, holds speed better, more traction, um, or the Troy, which is 140 rear, 150 front. So basically not quite an inch more travel than the Django in 27.5. And that's, that's, I think the most versatile bike we have. Um, sure. it can, the Troy. yeah, exactly. It can, I mean, if you want to go up to like Stevens and ride bike park, it's capable. Um, mm-hmm. and a you lot can of, still pedal it. Yeah. A lot, a lot of trails have kind of gotten, um, sanitized in the sense of like it's a lot smoother you know the the idea of the flow trail kind of like bermed tabletop trail center is kind of you know been developing so for that kind of stuff you don't need a bunch of travel um and in the northwest it seems like there's a lot of fire road up single track down whether it's tiger um you know galby which is a mix of single track climbing uh sure. galbraith in bellingham yeah yeah exactly mm-hmm. um sandy ridge outside of portland you know it seems like in the northwest i think west in general a lot of times there's that like you pedal up a fire road get to the trail to send that so cool um yeah that seems to be the troy is what i ride almost all the time and i have access to mm-hmm. pretty much every bike in our line so wow, that's i kind great. of i kind of know what it can do yeah. and how it handles so for me that's uh, kind of knowing the limitations and where it excels and also just what it's going to, I guess, predictability. Like I know what the bike's going to do. Whereas when I switch bikes, they're good bikes, but they just handle a little bit different. So it's not, it takes me a little bit to get used to it. So Sure. Cool. And so uh, <laughs> you mentioned 29ers. Any interest in getting into the, to the tire size conversation? Yeah, sure. It's, it's okay, cool. It's, it's, eternally fascinating to me i worked in bike shops years ago and and so i've seen the various iterations of gear development and and all that but the the wheel size thing it 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 definitely has its controversy Mm -hmm. and and but to me it's just a question of what's what's gonna stick and what's what's coming and let's see another aspect is should there i saw a Somebody posted online, should we allow 29ers in downhill races? <laughs> so anyway, what do you think about all that? Um, again, I think it's a pretty good time to be a mountain biker because they all have different, you know, all they, the all variety. Have, they all have different kind of like places where they excel. Sure. Um, and, you know, literally up until would have been mostly like early 2000s when the kind of 29er came onto scene. And even in that aspect, it was like a purely xc race hardtail like situation yeah um but had already existed for a long time in europe well yeah i mean you had kind of trekking bikes and you had the 700 c wheel which is the rim is effectively the same diameter it's just different tire size um but it i mean the effectively we settle on 26 inch wheels as i understand it because it was surplus motorcycle tires from world war one or world war two that created the schwinn tire which is like the beach cruiser tire yeah and that's they got cheap tire. They got cheap rubber. That's the that's the wheel size they built the bike around. Yeah, infrastructure for for wheels already exist or for tires already exist. Yeah, and so then what you have is, I don't know, whatever fifty. No, it wouldn't have been fifty. Um, yeah, I don't know exactly what year it was. Probably would have been forties or fifties. So yeah, fifty years of running that tire size yeah. without most people thinking about it. Yeah, and then 
you know, through racing, XC racing is where the 29er came about, right? Like it was, it does roll faster. Um, it absorbs more, more traction. Yeah. Rolls over stuff better. So that's where that 29er came about. And then, uh, then after that, you know, there was, was kind of like a cross country type, you know, race, race bike in general, they started coming out with dual suspension. And for me, like the first 29ers I didn't like, but in hindsight, I realized it wasn't a wheel size thing. It was a geometry thing. Hmm. Like I don't like cross country race bikes. It's not, it, they're not bad bikes. It's just, it's not my riding style. Sure. So not if you it. give me a 26 inch cross country hardtail, like it's not something I'm probably going to have that much fun on. It's right. not a bad bike. It's just for me. Yeah. If you give me a 27.5 cross country racing hardtail, probably not going to have that much fun on it. If you give me a 29 inch cross country racing hardtail, probably not going to have that much fun on it. Now, gotcha. if you give me kind of an all mountain bike in any of those three wheel sizes with, you know, modern geometry, then like, yeah, there's pros and cons, but I think I'm going to enjoy riding all three. And so for me, I realized it's more of a, it wasn't a wheel size thing. It was a bike thing. You know, if the, sure. if my riding, riding style, style met the intended purpose of the bicycle, sure. Then wheel size wasn't much of an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, as far as the 29er and racing thing, I mean, it's racing. That's like, we're not going to limit gears on racing. We don't limit, you know, in the road, they do limit bike weight, but it's, that's where the product development happens. And if it's effectively, you know, like, uh, other uh, than the hand on, uh, on the road, they limit bike weight, meaning like in the tour, you can only, your bike can only be so light. Yes, exactly. Which is counterintuitive, but it's a fact. Um, I think it stems from a safety issue they were sure. worried about like 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay. now what you see is, you know, on a side note on that is power meters on bikes. So they, they actually have live recordings of a team manager can see what their rider's doing in the car, like the Tour de France. So they can see how their rider's doing without having to ask them. Mm-hmm. So they can see how much, they can see heart rate when someone's climbing. They can see power output. So Wattage. <clears throat> exactly. So they can see like, is a, you know, DS or director sportive or team manager, you can be like, okay, so-and-so's doing really well today. Well, maybe we attack, you know, like, so, mm-hmm. so they're, there's still that bike weight limit, but they've gone to more aerodynamic bikes. They've gone to, mm-hmm. you know, like power meters on bikes. So it's to some extent changed a little bit, but it's still, they're still really light. I mean, anyone that mountain bikes picks up a modern road bike and you're like, wow, this thing weighs nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the flip side of that is, it's only for UCI sanctioned races. Right. So if you're trying very to just, limited use. If you're trying to just go ride your road bike for fun and you're trying to climb up the hill and want a light bike, like cool, buy that bike. You know, and most people, you know, most people the the in any bike category, um, there's a fraction of the bike sales that that bike is raced. Whether it's an enduro bike, whether it's a downhill bike, whether it's an XC racing hardtail, whether it's a road bike, very few of those bikes are actually raced. Gotcha. You know, it's, you buy a downhill bike and you go to Stevens and you buy a downhill bike and you go to Whistler. Yeah. And even those people like race a Northwest cup occasionally, right. you know, they'll do a race a year, they'll do two race a year, but they they probably would never consider themselves a racer and, you know, aren't buying a race bike. It's just, I buy a bike that does what I need it to do. And occasionally I might use that bike for a racing application. Gotcha. So, Interesting. Um, yeah. So far as racing on 29 or like, Go for Downhill. it. Downhill. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <clears throat> yeah, go for it. I mean, the there isn't as I understand, there isn't UCI regulations really that apply. It applies to mountain bikes, mm-hmm. not downhill cross country or disciplines. Okay. Um so oh, okay. I see. the rules are uh from what I understand, I believe, is across the board for mountain bikes. So oh, okay. um I mean 
So no, you don't think that there's, I think one of the, one of the aspects of the debate is, is there a substantial advantage to 29ers over 27.5 or 26? I think it's going to depend on courses and I think it's going to depend on riders. Sure. Um, And possibly riding style. Uh, I mean, a fast guy just won on a 29er. So was it because he's fast or because he had a 29er's wheel? Well, we know both things are true. Um, (laughs) We don't know what, what that day the variable was um, with, and it's not stark (laughs) enough or it's not obvious enough to make a, at least not at this point in like, you know, for the last 10 years, there's been review of the same bike in 29, the same bike in 26, the same bike in 27, which bike's faster, which bike's better, which bike's this, which bike's that like racing. You have, a unique set that the only quantifier is time. Yeah. It's not feel. It's it's fastest, <laughs> fastest. Well, I didn't like riding. I didn't have as much fun on it. It's great. Um, kind of like I don't sometimes have fun doing my job, but I'm paid to do it and I'm paid to do it well. So like if yeah. you're a racer, kind of like, and I think of that with that mentality too, it's like, you're going to ride what's fastest, you yeah. know, like, yeah. um, you're, or you're going to ride what's, yeah, like <clears throat> effectively what's fastest. So, I I don't I don't even see what the debate's about. Like honestly, like if sure. if a racer wants to race it and there's nothing saying they can't do it from a you know like rule standpoint, then like would we have this? Would would there be the same complaint if someone showed up on a twenty six inch wheel? Right. You know, because almost all downhill bikes have gone to twenty seven five. Is is anyone gonna freak out because like that's not fair? You can't run a twenty six inch wheel. We've all decided <laughs> as a whole that twenty seven five wheels are what we all race on. Sure. And but. and I think that's what it would come down to if it if if the debate ever got to the official level where someone had to make a decision, it would be and it would probably land on at this point anyway at twenty seven five. Everybody must ride twenty seven five. Yeah, who knows but, who knows if that'll ever happen. Well then what do you base that off of? Outside diameter of tire or rim? Because <laughs> right. if you run yeah, a plus tire and yeah. you run a high volume twenty seven five tire, then you're near low volume twenty nine inch tire size. Yep. So <clears throat> so it becomes very mm. uh you know, in the same way that laws are written for the normal, you know, populace where it's like the speed limit 65. Well, why is it not 70? Why is it not 62.5? <laughs> like why? Like, sure. We we had to put the line somewhere. That's the line. That's so, right. It um, gets ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, the only, you know, the only interesting one for me as far as like racing overall was the, you know, visor and skin suit rule. You okay. can't wear a skin suit and downhill. Uh, like, I think it was a stylized thing. I think it was... uh you know, uh, to keep the image of the sport in, in the right sense, because if it's racing, like every other speed sport wears a skin suit. Yeah. Like even in BMX, right. You have to wear pants. Yeah. And really what you'd want to do is wear a skin suit and BMX. You can't wear a skin suit. Wow. And, and I think it was, uh, you can probably do some research. There was someone was doing roll down tests, um, from the start gate of like BMX supercross. Okay. And they were faster in shorts. Because of air resistance. Yeah. And that's why, like, now there's the tight-fitting jersey rule where if you see jerseys have all gotten slimmer and slimmer on BMX racing because that's aerodynamics. Yeah. And so it's like, there's, I think, the rule where you have to be able to pull it away or something. Like, it's literally this kind of arbitrary rule of, like... Incredible. Yeah. And so it's, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to eke out tenths and hundreds of a second and... Although maybe not quite as important on a BMX race that's really short on a downhill race with higher speeds where you're coasting a lot, like aerodynamics are important. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. like it's, but it's, no skin suits in, in no skin suits in downhill, no skin suits in BMX. <laughs> and I think you have to wear a visor on your helmet, which is another weird one. Like mm. 
like literally we're putting an air scoop on the front of this thing that's really hot. like <sighs> yeah like yeah. why do you think you don't see any like even dual sport riders that ride motos like a lot of times take the helmet or the visor off the helmet for ride on the road sure you know you ride 50 miles to the trail and you put the helmet on when you get to trail because it sucks riding on the road because of air resistance and pulling your head away so mm-hmm. it's always racing's really interesting because it's like it's the arbitrary rule thing of like let's see who can go fastest mm-hmm. you can't wear a skin suit yeah. Like, well, why? But it's fastest. I thought that's what we're trying to. Do. I See, thought that's what would, we're trying to do today. It would seem to me that the tire diameter thing would be a substantially bigger issue than skin suit or not. Yeah, because of the advantages of of well, twenty nine over twenty six, definitely. Mm-hmm. Like, no question. There's mm-hmm. an advantage. There are advantages. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are some disadvantages. You can't snap a turn as fast. At, yep. Right, etc. But anyway, all right. Well, we that horse is dead. Yeah. <laughs> Ride what, you, what, ride what you want to ride, you know. Like, yeah, that's race yeah. what you want to race. And as, if you're a pro, get away with whatever you can for as long as you can. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> whatever makes you faster, it's not, or makes you feel like you're faster. Yeah, that one's weird because it's not like I don't think I don't. There's no way that no one saw it coming. Like people were racing hmm. like at national champs in 2009. There was a dude on a 29er downhill bike. Wow. Like it's. No, like it was strange because at that point, like everyone was still on 26 inch wheels down. Like that was like skipped right over the 27.5 thing. And like, yeah. yeah, but like there was, I don't remember anyone complaining about someone showing up on a 29 inch downhill bike. It was like, that guy's crazy. Yeah. Why would you be doing that? But sure. it was never like, it was never a, is this legal? Should this be legal issue? Um, right. Well, and the 27.5 thing seems like a snapback or a reaction to 29. Like, we had 26, now here's this huge wheel. Uh, how about something a little more reasonable? Mm-hmm. And uh, does that does that sound like both through with manufacturing and kind of, well, let's face it, uh, rider preference drives manufacturing to some extent? Yeah, and I think it's also, it is a good, <clears throat> like, not universal, but it's a good versatile wheel size for like a one... Yeah. You know, the the you know, the versatile bikes we're talking about, 125 to 100 and whatever, 60 mils travel, the kind of mm-hmm. like do everything SUVs of bikes. It's a really good wheel size. Like it does, you do notice it rolls better than a 26-inch wheel. You know, yep. you do notice it's more maneuverable than a 29-inch wheel. You can, especially with some suspension designs, it gets really hard to get short chain stays, um, which is, you know, like you're always trying to balance wheel size, bike geometry, suspension handling, kind of like all these really complicated attributes and you know like with a 29 inch wheel if you're it it makes it harder to make a small bike handle well mm-hmm. you know like big wheel small bike you you can't put a giant thing in a small box like right. it's just physically mm-hmm. f- physically impossible so um it gets I weird think, yeah i think the 27.5 wheel is a good a good versatile wheel size that does like you know like i'll switch back um Bikes I've ridden for the last three years have been 27.5 um, in general. And then like riding a 120, so five inch travel 29er. And it's it's kind of surprising. It handles different, but um, my bike, the bike I usually ride was being demoed. So I went on a shop ride and rode uh, the Django 29. And I felt like I was going as fast as I could. Like I felt like I was going as fast as I wanted to go on a 120 mil 29er. And I felt that even on a bigger a little bit bigger travel 27.5 like for me i wouldn't have gone faster gotcha. you know like for me it was just like this is fast this is as fast as i need to be going i'm like <laughs> i might actually be going faster than i would 
mm-hmm. on a longer travel bike just because of the braking, you know, the traction of the wheels and the, the rollover of the wheels. So Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Let's get into uh, what you're doing with DaVinci right now um, and that whole that whole yep. situation. Um, so I am... How long have you been with them, first of all? This is third season. So I think I started like February of 2015, February or March. And can you give listeners a, a brief idea of what DaVinci is as a bike company? Yeah. So DaVinci is, I mean, it's, it's slight... DaVinci is a, you know, bicycle manufacturing company. It's very base. Um, So this is the 30th year anniversary. So started in 1987, which I think for most people is uh, a surprise, especially in the U.S., Um, you know, because it's definitely had a bigger push in the last few years. So a lot of, I don't know, like a lot of kind of casual users that don't pay attention, that don't read magazines, that don't read, you know, they they wouldn't be aware of the brand. Um, Sure. So, uh, in the U S I think the brand perception is mountain bikes, you know, it's a, it's a trail bike, um, downhill bike, uh, you know, like we have downhill world championships, um, brand in Canada, it's more of a universal bike brand, you know, like some of the others, uh, they make city bikes, um, you know, they make road bikes, they make a time trial bike, they kind of make the full spectrum. Um, so it's, it's kind of like, uh, different brand perception in the u.s versus canada but also they've been around for 30 years in canada so it's it's more of a household name than it would be in the u.s yeah. um it's pretty cool it's owned by one dude which is pretty awesome wow, um that's interesting yeah so there's a guy at the top it's not you know um holding company right. investment company this 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 <laughs> the, the, in, the, in, the investors and in finger quotes or you know the owners and finger quotes it's like yeah you can point to him and be like that's the owner which is pretty rad um, the other cool thing is like most lifetime warranty on basically everything. So carbon and aluminum, which I think sets wow. us apart from a lot of, a lot of brands, not yeah. every brand, but, mm-hmm. um, and that's, you know, like we're trying to make a durable bike that you can ride for multiple years, not kind of like a, uh, limited lifetime, um, fragile or, you know, non, non-durable piece of equipment, mm-hmm. uh, and, or a fad, a fad bike. Yeah, exactly. Like you, there's, I mean, I'm blown away sometimes when I see, like, I guess being on this side of the industry, you see bikes, people buy a bike every year or two, or, you know, sure. people in the industry, if you work at a shop, a lot of times you buy a bike and then like you sell it at the end of the season and like, then, you know, just kind of like keep flipping bikes every year or two. Sure. Um, <clears throat> but uh, the other cool thing is like a lot of manufacturing still happens in Canada. So even the carbon wow. frames that are made in Asia um, get QC'd in Canada, get assembled in Canada, a lot of times get painted in Canada. So it's in Chicoutimi, mm-hmm. Quebec, which is five hours northeast of Montreal. So it's okay. pretty far up there. Um, most, I think all of the aluminum suspension bikes at this time um, are still made in Canada, which wow. we're one of the only manufacturers that still do that. Um, huh. So that's kind of unique to our brand. Uh, and Felix is very adamant to try to keep as much stuff in-house as possible um and we're still competitive making you know aluminum aluminum frames in uh north america or in canada which is pretty rad um and i guess part of that is because of the qc rate is so low so our warranty rate is so low that we can see uh quality control okay so like our warranty rate is low that that kind of offsets the cost of having something made in asia you know so if we only have to effectively you know give away a warranty frame can give away way less than that cost doesn't have to be spread throughout the whole line. Interesting. Um, That's a really smart approach. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so that's kind of Vinci, you know, I'm okay. a bicycle manufacturing company based out of Chicoutimi, Quebec, 30 years old, um, you know, single owner effectively, uh, and trying to make, you know, bikes for people to ride bikes. Um, yeah. Pretty much everyone, like I was blown away that those guys ride you around and it's like negative 40 and they just wow. go on fat bike Jeez. rides. And like, oh, it's not, like after like 15 minutes you get warmed up and yeah. I was just like, yeah, I just don't go outside in that town. Like, I grew up in Western Montana, and, like, I'm still not going outside in that. But, yeah, they, like, uh, one of wow. the marketing guys, David, said that I think he rode, like, every workday for, like, you know, December, January, February. And it's it's Incredible. not like it's, like, 40 degrees or, like, 20 degrees, you know, in the Northwest. We're like, it's 20. It's real cold up here. You're yeah. like, it's, like, like, ridiculously cold. Yeah. And so they still ride. Like, you know, ride their fat bikes in winter on snow trails from the office, which I thought was crazy. Incredible. And you get the sense from the bikes. Um, I've, I've ridden the Troy and a couple others through GHY and mm-hmm. Renton that, that the, the, that Da Vinci has a mountain biking, a mountain biking culture, um, uh, driving their design, at yeah, least think, for their mountain bikes. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even like, even the gravel bike is kind of like more of a, like it's dropper post compatible. Mm. Wow. You know? huh. Just cool. It's kind of designed, not designed by mountain bikers, but it's, you know, it's a longer top tube, shorter stem. It's mm-hmm. lower. It's kind of like <laughs> taking some of the modern ideas of like a trail bike and putting them in a gravel bike, which <laughs> ends up just being a really universal road bike, right? It's not just, sure. you don't have to race gravel races. You can just, you can put a, you know. 1.75-ish tire, like 40, 45 wide tire on a road bike and realize that you can jump curbs and it's go really a lot fun. Of places, and sure. you can, you know, like pothole pavement or places in the Northwest where you can go on these, like for me, part of the thing I like about mountain biking is the adventure aspect of like kind of getting lost and kind of not really knowing where you are and exploring new places. Yeah. And, you know, on a traditional road bike, sometimes that can be limiting because you get to a road surface that's not that doesn't work with a 23 tire at high pressure and some of the gravel stuff, you get to the the dirt road or even single track and be like, huh, mm-hmm. wonder where this path goes. And, you know, you can kind of explore nice. a lot more. So yeah, it's a good um, commute back too. Yeah. Yeah. Like fender, usually fenders, especially in Northwest, um, you know, like fender compatible, um, some of the alloy bikes rack compatible. So it's pretty awesome. Just like road bike in the not traditional road race tour de France bike sense, <laughs> you know, road bike sure. in the sense of like, Cool, a bike that rides well on the road and does a bunch of stuff. And which bike is that again? Uh, the Hatchet. Cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, so as far as what you're doing for Da Vinci, mm-hmm. you you are doing demos, driving all over the gosh darn place. Yep. What's uh, that like? It's good. I mean, we started uh, to you know to work to kind of get people on bikes is one of the biggest uh, hurdles. You know, like I think our bikes ride really well, but not everyone's familiar with them and not every shop has a full size run of demos or bikes on the floor. So for us, it was, you know, to grow the brand, um, we needed to get people on the bikes. And so in 2015, we started the Northwest demo program. So I work in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, um, and travel to events, uh, travel to, you know, shop rides, um, do the occasional race with some of our local guys or grassroots riders and help them out. Um, but effectively it's show up at a trailhead or a shop, um, set up, you know, the tents, park the trailer, get all the bikes out and just allow people to come ride a bike for an hour and kind of allow them to experience the bike for themselves and figure out, you know, I can, I can give you a whole bunch of marketing, you know, jargon. I can give you a geometry chart. I can give you everything else, (laughs) but like, 
you got to get on it to figure out if it's right for you. You sure. know, you can describe a pizza in a thousand different words, but like <laughs> there's some pizza you like and some pizza <laughs> you might like more or less. And like, it doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter what the menu description says. Like yeah. if you can't try it, you're never going to know if you, you like it. So for it. us, for us, it's just getting people on bikes. And also sometimes even if they're a loyal Da Vinci customer, figure out which bike they like, right. With, you know, a shorter travel 29 or like the Django at 120 mils or, you know, more travel, Troy, 140 mils. And you're just kind of like side by side, allowing them to figure out what works best for them, their riding style, their terrain, their trails. So that's like, I think that's the biggest thing is just getting, getting people on bikes. And, um, you know, the shops that we're in are, are well-versed, uh, in the product and are, you know, tend to be mountain bike, um, focused or just like mountain bike experience shops. So they can, you know, they can talk about the feel of the bike. They can talk about the geometry. They can talk about all this stuff, but I'm there so you can ride the bike. You know, like sure. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to people and they'll be like talking like, what's the geometry number? What's this? I'm just like, go ride the bike, man. Yeah. Like that's, that's why we're here. That's why I came here. It's not, you can get on the website and see like everything I'm going to tell you. Yeah. You know, it literally has the geometry. It has the frame construction story. It has all this stuff, but like right. what you can't do on the website is ride the bike. <laughs> what you can't do at the bike shop necessarily is ride the bike. So yeah. go ride the bike and then come back and, it doesn't matter what the frame material is if you don't like it. It doesn't matter what the head angle is if you like it, right? Like right. it doesn't it doesn't matter what's like what's what ingredients or the process they made to make the pizza crust if you like really like the pizza. It doesn't matter. I like the pizza. Sure. Sure. Cool. And you must meet some interesting characters uh doing <laughs> demos. I'm sure you've had some challenges. Yeah. Yeah, I mean everyone's <laughs> Like I have a pretty varied background in the sense of, you know, I've lived all over, I've like traveled all over. So I think it's just trying to make a connection and draw a parallel to a lot of times, whatever they're into their hobby, right? Whether it's, it's always like trying to make that connection with someone and trying to figure out how to explain a technical, a lot of times a technical aspect to, you know, someone that might not no terminology or might be even using terminology incorrectly. Mm -hmm. So it's, oh, okay. you know, like sometimes it's, it's, um, you know, like is the shock progressive is like kind of a, and it's like, right. well, that's, there's, we're talking about two things. Do you mean is the leverage curve of the suspension progressive or do you mean is the shock itself progressive and what, like, you know, like yeah. it sometimes comes down to like this very, like we, we, we gotta like, we have to establish definitions for the words before we can have a technical talk about this thing so sure um just throwing out jargon doesn't help and that gets back to the to the what what are the ingredients in the pizza yeah do you like it or not you right like like flour what kind of flour <laughs> wheat flour well what kind of wheat <laughs> sure what kind of butter the, did you use did you melt the, the butter first did you did you put the like i, I just get on it yeah yeah it, it, yeah Go exactly right. like and for us that's that's what it is you know i'll tell yeah. people I'll be like man we can talk about this but i just go ride it you know like the, the shops are well-versed. You can go into AJ at GHY, you know, and talk to him about the bikes. He's ridden them. He knows them. But you can't just go ride them on, you know, like when we did the demo with GHY at Tapeworm. Like, mm -hmm. if you ride a Tapeworm every day, it like ride the bike at the trail you ride and you come away and be like, I like it. Or like, I, I like that one better for, you know, this trail or whatever. So, yeah, um, yeah it's, it's taking the product to the you know, the customer at local trails and allowing them to experience the bike themselves, um, kind of in their home environment. And I think that's the best, 
that's the best way to figure out if something's right for you. You know, ride the bike on your trails to see if that bike is right for you. Cool. So I'm curious what it's like to work with, say, a Carson Storch in a in a more pure modern slope style scenario. Um, it's I mean it's pretty mellow in general. You know, like they they're in general those athletes are pretty self sufficient, and so um they're not they're super appreciative of any help they can get. You know, from a mechanical standpoint, because usually they're building their own bike out of their bike bag. They're you know, tuning their own bike, that kind of thing. Um, oh, interesting. So you're just there for emergency support? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's in, well, not necessarily at an event like that. Like if they show up with their bike in a bag, I'm going to assemble it. But it's just okay. like, they're so used to traveling by themselves, gotcha. you know, that it's, they're pretty self-sufficient. Um, yeah. Well, you, okay. That's interesting. Why, why, why is that? I mean, as, as compared to downhill guys, it's just because the it's, there aren't as many eyes on that, on that sport or... I don't think lower it's key. that. I think it's lower key. I mean, I don't, I don't think BMX racers, even at like a, an elite level, have a mechanic, right? Gotcha. Like it's a it's okay. a simple ish bike. Um, uh -huh. Uh -huh. You know, so it's like most of those guys can put a stem on and probably adjust a handlebar. And so, in that case of like, what is a company going to gain by paying someone like me a whole bunch of money and sure. getting an extra hotel room and covering their food and getting you know like another plane ticket that. Yeah. So, but you're I, there nonetheless. Uh, yeah. And some of those, it was, it was just as much brand exposure, you know, or it was gotcha. kind of targets of opportunity if I happened to be there or I'd, I'd work my schedule around doing demos and shop visits to hit up some of those events. Uh, um, sure. Sure. Cause they're and, broad spectrum. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, uh, Colorado free ride festival when I was there and, uh, helping with Kelly, it was like the day after the event, we just did a whole bunch of stuff to his bikes. You know, like all of his bikes, he just brought worked just through like, his bikes. Yeah, it was like blood the brakes, put on pads, put on a new chain. You know, did all this other stuff to all his other bikes that he's constantly riding. So mm -hmm. it wasn't just the um, fix. You know, like fix his slope style bike. And yeah, you do run through it, um, but stuff doesn't get as cooked. You know, they don't really use their brakes that often. Mm. So whereas <laughs> a downhill bike, it's gonna get the brakes super hot. It's gonna get beat up. You're riding through mud, like. You know, like look at uh, something similar would be brakeless BMX, right? It's like a, almost a similar <laughs> uh, environment is, you know, like a slope style environment. And like obviously those guys can ride stuff like similar to that on a BMX bike without brakes. So, um, I mean, suspension setup isn't – it. everyone has their style, but it's not like everyone runs suspension super stiff. So it's not like um, you're not usually trying to gain traction from – uh, like suspension setup on a dirt jump bike or slope right. style bike, whereas you know traction's really super sensitive on bumps and stuff like that. Yeah, whereas like traction's super important on a downhill bike when you're going sure. over wet routes and trying to turn and brake on those wet routes. Like that suspension setup is super important. And like talk to probably most dirt jump or slope style people, it's like how's your suspension setup? Oh, really stiff. <laughs> period <laughs> and like, of conversation yeah like and you you know like you talk to a downhill guy and it's i have this psi i have this many clicks on compression i have this many clicks on rebound and it's not that one is better bike rider than the other it's just like it's it's a different you know kind of like a different arena a different the what you're looking at of it is is you know like the the suspension setup i think is critical on a downhill bike that's one of the biggest things you know mm -hmm. And, fine tuning yeah and and on a slope style bike it's you're trying to it's almost more of a safety factor in the sense of you know if you do come down nose heavy or something you want to be able to have a little bit of give to 
a little bit give to kind of help you out, you know. But okay, so so regarding rear suspension on slope style bikes, mm-hmm. um, the trend obviously is it's it's almost a dirt jumper, right? Mm-hmm. It just happens to have a rear suspension, mm-hmm. and that suspension, for those who might not know, is for. Um, I mean it. It really depends because if you see a lot of guys that run a dual suspension, they'll run, you know, they'll run a hardtail. And so sometimes it's dependent on course. Right. So some of the, some of the events, everyone is running rear suspension. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, I get it that there's a lot of slope style being done on, on hardtails, mm-hmm. but the, you know, I mean, uh, Crankworks, for mm-hmm. example, those bikes are pretty much all rear suspension. So, yeah, I think at that point, it's just, they're doing such big stuff, right? They're and, literally doing the same drop that, 15 years ago would have been done on a, a almost like a downhill bike. So <laughs> Josh Bender. Yeah, exactly. Or, or, you know, like Bearclaw when he first started riding and like some uh-huh. of those guys that first really started like the like free ride slope style of, you know, the mm-hmm. mid two thousands where it was like, you did a big drop mm-hmm. and then you might like take your feet off or you might do a tabletop or something like that. And then it was like, uh, all of a sudden it's like, you know, Bearclaw 360 to flat drop. And like, it was kind mm-hmm. of like the, the BMX trick side of thing kind of like melded with the free ride side of thing and kind of like modern, you know, here we are 10, 15 years later and modern slope style came out of it. So mm-hmm. I think in that case, it's just like, there's just some big drops and it's a safety factor. You know, if you, my perspective comes from someone that will never ride anything like that or can ride at that level is it gives you a little bit of a, you know, a safety factor when you do land wrong or when you do, you know, land a little bit off access, you know, and that, that suspension's there to kind of absorb it and talking, you know, like talking to some riders is just, it's comfort on the body, like doing five or 10 runs in a day and doing these big flat drops, like your wrists start hurting your, you know, your ankles start hurting. So at the end of four days of doing this, it's not always who's the best. It's who can nail the trick and who can hang on sometimes. So Uh as far as comfort over, that amount of time it's you know you're not doing a huge drop on a hardtail and like taking that shock to the body it's it's the bikes absorbing some of the shock so like it might not be obvious immediately but four four days down the road when you know you're you're still hitting those big drops and and you're a little bit fresher and you're you know your body's not as sore and your body's not as beat up like that's a big thing for those guys because it is I can't imagine even trying to hold on to the bars or like keep your feet on the pedals on some of those impacts they're taking. So sure. So and I it's think- and it's what that's one of the reasons that you see some B- older BMX guys or, and younger BMX guys going, "Whoa, this is uh, I like this." Yeah. Not being riding around on a block of cement. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. And and I think the with like the free ride world tour, like uh, there's some pretty cool um, stuff happening you know like the big events the the urban races where it's like Mm. through you know like through a medieval town in europe and you're like that's Mm. just a really cool stage yeah that you know in a weird way somehow bmx is more way more popular than slopes out whether it's street park um bmx has had you know x games forever sure vans triple crown all that stuff and it's kind of like mountain biking is kind of coming around to that Uh um but it's still like it's not definitely not as prevalent as bmx you know like think of think of when you just drive through any city and you see kids sessioning on a BMX bike or dirt jump tracks and slope style mountain biking is this tiny niche sport. But I think it's absolutely, I think when you get to those cool spots and you get to, you know, a medieval castle in Europe or whatever, then it's like, (laughs) it's, it's kind of made for TV in that sense. And it's a lot easier to, 
um, promote to people. So mm-hmm. yeah, but there's definitely you'll see um, some of the BMX guys getting in. I mean, that's how like that's where Bearclaw started. Like he was a BMX kid, yeah, and like oh, yeah. transferred over. You know, like. Um, and even the guys that didn't start in it necessarily, or they started maybe equally in mountain biking. So most of them are still riding BMX sometimes uh, yeah. for fun or whatever. Yeah. I um, mean, even on the racer side of things, Joe Kittner, Lars Sternberg, like, um, Matthew Slavin, like, uh, races Super D and, or I guess Enduro now and races for Da Vinci and race for Kona. Like a lot of those people have a BMX background mm-hmm. because it's, I think it's it's more accessible for a family to go to a BMX track on Saturday than sure. it is go mountain biking, go to a downhill race. And that's, that's somewhat changing. You know, Casey and Scott at the Northwest Cup are doing a great family-oriented event. And, Absolutely. You know, like you camp all weekend. Like you would, you, you know, people bring up their camp trailer and hang out like just like they would at a BMX track. So it's yep. it's a little bit changing. And you see, you know, the, the parents the parents racing and the And then there's the racing. cost accessibility as well. Yeah. BMX bikes. Well, of course, you can spend as much money as you want on a BMX bike, but you can get a really good BMX bike for a lot less. Under than a grand a, is like a yeah. grand is like the nice, you know, like not the nicest one you can get, but like pretty it's, dang nice. You know, up like there. Yeah. W- without everything being carbon, everything being, you know, like crazy high end like a grand will get you a really nice race bike whereas like a grand will get you a dirt jump hardtail and mountain biking you know Mm, so sure um, sure. yeah you can get a decent one for a grand but yeah but 1800 is better yeah exactly (laughs) even for a a downhill bike you're talking about 2500 dollars for the frame for the jumping off point yeah and like you know like a complete maybe at three grand 3500 so yeah there's yeah. a lot of traction in the used market for yeah for sure <laughs> for BM, uh, mountain bikes yeah for sure so back to slope style suspension real mm-hmm. quick um i'm curious to what extent the the rear shock is helping with boost and and pop i mean there's obviously some there's a there's you know uh uh cause and effect so if you are pumping it like there is that ability to get a little bit of pop Mm -hmm. um i think and you'll find that you know even just thinking of riding at a lower level just riding a suspension bike on trail and being able to kind of bump off a route and like pump into a route or pump into a little like curb cut or something like that and be able to get that extra pop because the bike is pushing back at you yeah um so there's you know i think there's something there it uh you tend to add weight so I know sure. some of the guys on hardtails that are doing more technical tricks, um, like talking to some of those guys, they can feel the weight difference on the suspension bike. It tends right. to be a little bit longer in the back end. So mm-hmm. trying to double tail whip a bike that weighs a pound, pound and a half more, especially with that weight out away from the steering axis. And that's something that they can notice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there is definitely, you know, a you getting an advantage from the suspension that way but there is uh the suspension bikes tend to be a little bit longer too so again longer and tends to put the weight farther away so if you're spinning threes if you're like if those guys are tail whipping talking to some of them like they can tell the difference like difference in tube weights and tire weights yeah interesting you know so it's like you'll put on a tire that in my mind like i can't tell 100 grams on a mountain bike tire like as far as performance personally but those guys you put that tire at the back of the bike and then they're trying to double tail whip and that back of the bike now weighs a half pound or a quarter pound more. And they can actually, they can tell the difference in how the bike spins, which is crazy level to me. (laughs) It's intense. Yeah. Yeah. And just something I never thought of. I was just like, I don't do that. I don't think about that. That's, (laughs) that's a thing you think about. (laughs) 
<laughs> right. Oh, they're thinking about it. All yeah, right. for sure. <laughs> Definitely. And they're trying different bikes and, and the experience changes. It's gotta yeah. be, it's, it's, uh, yeah, that level of sensitivity. That's mm-hmm. the, the pinnacle of the sport right there. I think, uh, you know, if you're throwing a cork <laughs> cor- or a, let alone a 720, you know, like Nikolai Rogatkin, some of the stuff he's doing yeah. now or Brandon, obviously, um, man, the sensitivity you'd have to have to uh, just imagine trying to just know where the hell you're at in a cork 720, yep. let alone land it and right away. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's mind boggling. Yeah. And so fun to watch. And they, are, I think the, some of the little dual suspension slow bikes just make a little bit more versatile bike. Cause you can kind of ride them at, at like a, as more of a trail bike. So a place like, Oh, sure. You the, mean like for the average rider? Yeah. For dude, <laughs> yeah. they do. They make great kids bikes. Like one of the things that happened oh, is since, since yeah. we go to 27, five wheels. Yeah. Oh sure. Like you're you have a shredder kid that's four foot eight. Right. He needs twenty six. What what's he gonna ride? And and they have great geometry and good suspension. Yeah. You know, like it's designed to be pushed by an adult. So uh-huh. does Da Vinci do a, a slope style bike? No. Don't do a slope style bike. What do you bike. like for slope style brands? Um I mean there's a lot of companies out there. Um like when I, I work when I worked at Diamondback, I had a Dreamliner, and that was awesome because okay. I could kind of ride it as a suspension as a trail bike. It wasn't ideal, but no. it was a great second bike. Mm-hmm. You know, like um, cool. my uh, at the time, my girlfriend rode a bunch and was a beginning mountain biker, and was like, you know, a little bit over five feet. And for her, it was like a normal size mountain bike. <laughs> so Interesting. yeah, and it, it works really well. And like that's you know huh. when when parents are looking for bikes for kids, a lot of times I'm like, hey, they tend to be expensive. Yeah. But if you can find a used, you know, 26 inch slope style bike, dual suspension, I'm like, they're rad. The geometry is awesome. Like, you know, like the short rear end, longer top tube, like slacker head angle, like they work great for short people trail bikes. Yeah. Very cool. Yep. Okay. I think we did it. Cool. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you. Next That's time, cool. next time we'll talk for hours and hours about the dif- differences between, between, uh, chromoly aluminum and, <laughs> Carbon. <laughs> Ooh, I, I'm not. I would hate to be quoted on any of that. I have opinions. I have, I, no, not opinions. It's just like I'm not a scientist. Like I have what I have learned. And... I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thanks once again to Verge for taking time out of his busy schedule to share his experience and his story. You'll find lots of valuable links in show notes for this episode located at mtbjumper.com slash verge. And whether you're using the native iTunes podcast app or Castro or any Apple or Android podcatcher, I like Podcast Republic, show notes are right there on your device. Or head over to mtbjumper.com. You'll see this episode at the top of the page where you'll find show notes and lots of cool links. All right, what else you'll find there is the link to the iTunes page for this show. I need your help. I need stars. As I've mentioned before, if you like the show, give me five stars at iTunes. That's going to help with distribution. Other people are going to see it, and that means I'll get to keep doing it. <laughs> also, facebook.com slash podcast. Head over there, stomp on that like button for the page for the episode, hit the share button for the episode, Uh, We want your friends to hear it. That's important. It's going to make all the difference if you share it. Also, I'm at MTB Jumper Podcast on Instagram. Head over there, follow. I'll follow you back. I'll share some pictures and videos. It's going to be great. Anyway, if you're not on my email list, I send an email once a week 
Never spam. Your email will not be shared. I totally respect your privacy. Uh, let's see. I'm giving stuff away there. T-shirts, stickers, parts. That's right. I had a conversation with AJ Johnson last week. We're going to give some parts away. And we're both stoked about that. You should be too. mtbjumper.com. Get on the email list. All right, folks. Thanks again for listening. Another fun, informative, insightful episode coming next week. I'll see you then. In the meantime, take time. Well, that's what I'm going to do anyway. I'm going to head over to Softies in uh, South SeaTac here in Western Washington. Jump that little giant STP of mine. Meet up with some buddies. Have some fun. Point is, take time to ride that bike. See you next week. <laughs>